Let's turn again to Acts 17. We're looking at the uh, sermon of Paul to the Areopagus in Athens on Mars Hill. And uh, we come to this beginning of verse 26. Acts 17:26. From one man God made every nation of men. All right? Acts 17, 26. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason. How infinite in faculties, in form and, and moving. How express and admirable in action. How like an angel in apprehension. How like a god. I wish I had Richard Burton's voice to say those words. I once heard him say them. It's from Hamlet, of course. Um, we can only know what uh, a man is when we know God, our maker. For men and women are made in the image and likeness of God. Knowing God and knowing man is a similar activity. Leaving the living God entirely out of the reckoning, then the highest experiences, the most blessed experiences of your life, your affections and your thinking, your opinions, your self-sacrifice and self-giving, your appreciation of, of beauty and music, they are to be accounted for godlessly, solely in terms of electrical impulses in the brain, man's nervous system and uh, chemical changes in his glands, He's, in short, then, simply an extremely complex organic machine, but no more. And a loved one, without the living God, becomes ultimately proteins and electrical impulses. By what standards do you judge and evaluate and estimate who you are and who people are? This man who is noble in reason, infinite in faculties. Without God and all his holy angels, the unbeliever then has nothing but the lesser creation to compare himself to. To measure himself by by that criteria. And so man ends up being dubbed a naked ape. So utterly demeaning. A phrase, Shakespeare's similitudes are so exalted. How like an angel, he says, in apprehension, how like a god. Now in this chapter, in the book of Acts, we are confronted with Paul standing on Mars Hill before a couple of dozen of the leading councillors of the city of Athens. They're in effect the local watch committee, and one of their functions is to assess itinerant preachers. Were they revolutionaries? And after hearing reports of this new man who was there in the marketplace and he was speaking day after day and people were being influenced and were gathering there, they went to see and to hear and then they invited him to come to a meeting of this council, the Areopagus. 
to ratify what they'd heard on the grapevine. Give an account of your teaching, they said to him. It was a wonderful opportunity for him. If he was to plant a church and then move on as his pattern was, he would want that church to have the freedom to gather and the freedom to evangelize. So we have then in this uh, passage in Acts 17, we have a brief praise by Luke of Paul's presentation of Christianity in a pagan world. People who had never had any contact, never knew the name of Jesus. And Luke records for us here the Apostle's salient points. I suppose you could read aloud the whole speech in the Acts to the Athenians in a minute. And I would guess then Paul spoke for about half an hour to them all until they had heard enough and they grew restless. Paul begins by speaking of of origins about the God he trusted on whose behalf in his service he'd come to Athens, one of the most famous cities in the world, to bring the gospel to them. And he tells them that God created the heavens and the earth and he gives to all men life and breath and everything else. That's his starting point. He starts with God and he says, let me tell you about God. And he presents to them this omnipotent maker of all the rolling spheres. That's his first point. And then he says, now let me tell you about yourselves. About you. About man. Where you come from. The human race. From one man, he made every nation of men. He made this Greek nation. And he made... The Jewish nation of which I'm the same God made us. That's what Paul told them. Now the Epicurean who was listening to Paul had an utterly inadequate pagan view of man. The late uh, Professor Blakelock, much admired by our friend uh, Stephen um, in New Zealand. He was the professor of classics at uh, the University of Auckland and spoke at Keswick one year. And he describes the Epicurean views. He's got a little commentary on uh, the book of Acts. And uh, he says how inadequate their view of, uh, of what man is was. They had no spiritual dimension, no moral dimensions, no religious dimensions to their understanding of what constitutes a man. Their views were materialistic, thoroughly, absolutely. The soul and the mind, according to Democritus, who was the leading Epicurean teacher. Man, man's soul and man's personality was atomic in structure. Atoms around and mobile and infinitely subtle and, and sight and hearing and taste and, and smell and so on were the impinging of atoms on these senses and they were material in structure. So that was the Epicurean view of man, that he was a mass of atoms. He was a lump of atoms. And for the Greeks then, the, this demeaning view of, of what man was had the most devastating effect upon their evaluation of men and women and children. 
For example, if there was an unwanted child, then immediately it was born. In the night, they would expose it, and the animals, the packs of dogs that uh, walked, roamed the streets, would tear it apart and eat it. Um, Another consequence was that five out of six of the people who lived in Athens were slaves. Men and women without any rights. No right for private possessions, no right for marriage. The lot of women was also wretched because Epicureans didn't see men and women equally made in the image and likeness of God to be honored and and respected and treasured and loved. So Paul speaks to these Athenian aristocrats, keepers of the city's morale, that every nation on earth comes from one man whom God had made. In other words, Paul taught them that Adam was the first man made by God, a fully historical human being who was the genetic father of the human race. In his loins was Beethoven and Picasso and Plato and Chaucer and Dickens and Tyndale and Churchill and Hugh For these senators to understand and believe the true nature of man was very important to Paul. Because he returns to this theme in a few verses. You can see that in 28 and 29. He wants to expand again who man is. And that's so important. It's the great battle that we, we face today in the 21st century. Books on medical ethics, uh, John's book and so on. You can see what the nature of man is. It's really a huge battleground, the warfare that we are fighting for our Christian understanding of who children and old people and men and women are, handicapped people are. The first thing I want to say to you is that uh, Adam was a real man created by God. So that the first human beings then, Adam and Eve, they were initially not unlike us except for our fallenness. They were not primitive, ape-like savages, um, covered from uh, head to foot in hair, like a cat or a dog. I suppose such creatures, if they did exist, would have to be judged as the highest form of ape. Uh, Creatures able to make primitive tools and uh, to paint on uh, walls or caves. Uh, Neanderthals who've long died out, like many of those uh, early creatures that we find their fossils. Um, The Adam of the Bible was not like that at all. He was homo sapien. He was like ourselves. I'm saying that the Adam we meet in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 was far more than um, a, a, a parable, a proverb, a biblical illustration, a teaching model. The first man, Adam, was the result of an inter-Trinitarian council. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us make man. They came to that decision. And, and they, they went ahead. And they made a man then perfectly righteous in holiness and, uh, and knowledge. 
And uh, then after some time, by man's own free action, which he alone was responsible, not God, not the serpent, not Satan, he listened to the voice of the enemy and he defied and he rebelled against God and he's brought sin and, and death upon humanity because of his unique position and, and his office. He was the federal head of mankind. Like Christ, the, the last Adam, is federal head of his people, of those who are the new creations who are going to inhabit the new heavens and the, the new earth. So Paul was led by the God of truth to say at this juncture now as he faces this couple of dozen men in their togas listening then, not enjoying what they are hearing, that of one man God made every nation of men. I think that word it was re- is really a preface to an even more basic question. Was the fall of man, as described in Genesis 3, a real event in calendar time? In human history. In other words, the figure of Adam in the Bible isn't simply a symbol of Mr. Everyman. A literary figure, but not a a human personality, not the first man. Then, then, you see, the message would be very different if that was the case. The message of uh, Genesis 3. It would be that uh, we're all prone to temptation. We're all prone Every man is. And the consequences of that is if there's no historic Adam who defied God and no fall, then the bad behavior that we see that makes us grow, the horrors that are going on in the world. I was reading a quotation in the paper yesterday of Salman Rushdie. He's never known the world to be in the terrible state that it is in today, he says. Now why is that? If there was no time of probation for Adam and Eve to see if they would do what God said, take from all the trees, but not one tree. If he was testing their submission to him and that his will was best. Then you say, no fall. Men have always been like this. This terrible pessimistic, despairing view of man. Man's always been killing and stealing and rebelling. If you're a man, that's how you behave. There was never a time when you were not behaving like this. And just like creation today, uh, nature raw in tooth and, and claw, violent, deceitful. There was never a paradise in Eden, in a perfect creation. There never was a fall into sin and death. And the final step of unbelief from denying creation and denying the fall is not a long jump before you're also denying redemption and the regeneration of all things and new life which God the Son gives to those who trust in him. Is the denial of the making of Adam and the fall of man uh, is that... Is that derived from the Bible? If preachers deny it, do they deny it because the Bible is uncertain or unclear about this fact? That there's no such historic first man and no fall. The modernist says that. 
Is not an imposition of the idea of this unbelieving existential age upon Scripture. The first mention of the creation of man you find in the first chapter. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then the next chapter we're told that the, the manner in which he did, God from the dust of the earth and molded and shaped and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature. And then we're told that he caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam because the first man needed a suitable helper. And so Jehovah took from Adam's side a, a bone which he fashioned and made into Eve. Like the Lord Jesus took dust and spat upon it and made mud and, and put it in the eye sockets of a blind man. And Adam and Eve then uh, are presented to us as living, breathing human beings. And they're doing down-to-earth things. They're working together in, in the garden and they're having conversations. And they're involved in sexual relations. And they're giving birth. And they're deciding on the names they're going to give to their children. A historic person. And the second thing I want to say to you is that man's creation was supernatural. And immediate. It's just such a contrast between um, the naturalistic view of how... Uh, people came about, how you and I came about. That uh, there was a process which began with an uh, amoeba or a single cell billions of years ago. And uh, over that period of time there's been an evolution to the complex organism that each one of us is. Man's creation is by an intrusion into the world of a supernatural act of God. He comes, he, he puts his hand into what he has made. Like the uh, opening of the waters of the Red Sea. Or the arrival of manna on the floor of the desert. Six days, not on the seventh day of the week. Or men staying alive, three men as they walk in a burning fiery furnace. Or the floating of an axe head. Or in the New Testament, the, the turning of... Of water in great water pots, six of them, there in Cana Galilee, and they are changed to aged wine in a moment. Or Jesus multiplying five loaves and two fishes and keeping breaking the bread and giving them out to the baskets, and five thousand men satisfied, and twelve baskets full of bread and fish left over. Or the uh, restoration of a man who's been lame from birth and the transformation of uh, his muscles so that he can stand immediately and stretch and leap and run. Immediately those actions took place and they can only be explained by this intervention, this God who reaches in and transforms that uh, scene of, of despair and death
This is the God without whom anything made that was made. And this is the God who sustains all living things. Who are you dealing with? In whose presence do we meet? Who is the God who's watched over us and given us daily bread and all material blessings, let alone the blessings of knowing him as our God and Savior and the hope that we have? What did the infallible Jesus say? You say you don't believe in the infallible Bible. I'm sorry you don't. But the infallible Jesus gives us an infallible Bible. And he says in Mark 10 and verse 6, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. What did the apostle of Jesus Christ say of whom his master said, those who hear you will be hearing me. You can slip, uh, you can't slip a leaf of Indian paper between what Paul has written and what Jesus Christ has said. This is what he says in his first letter to Timothy. We're going back now at the, towards the climax of redemptive history, aren't we? We're right now, the pastoral letters come right at the end, and Paul is still affirming this, First Timothy 2.13, for Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And then he writes, through Adam sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. He tells the Corinthians that the first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man was the Lord from heaven. He affirms we born the image of the first. Ah, we know that these aches and pains, the frailty of mind and body that we have. Ah, yes, we bear the image of dying Adam. We shall bear the image, though, of second Adam. Third thing I want to say to you is that the resurrection of the body is... The great indication of the truthfulness of Genesis 1. All right? I want to affirm that point. I think that's an irresistible argument for the creation, the literal creation of Adam from the dust of the earth by a miraculous act of God. I'm talking to you now about uh, the Christian hope of the resurrection. I've read to you the first section of First Corinthians 15. Our God is Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. The God of creation and the God of the last things. Origins and eschatology. And the church says in the Apostles' Creed, and many will have said it in million churches today, they will say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. They will say that. Great words. And that's in a moment... That's in the twinkling of an eye. The bodies of millions are scattered dust. The bodies of the patriarchs, Adam, and the patriarchs, the prophets, those burned at the stake. They picked up the dust of Wycliffe and they cast it into the river. They hated Wycliffe so much. Those that were drowned in the sea and burned up by brine and eaten by the creatures of the deep, we are told the trumpet will sound. And the Lord shall descend and he will bring with him all the spirits of just men made perfect. And their dust is precious in his sight and he will raise up our mortal physical remains. And he will join them to the spirit 
that he has brought with him. He is now holding their dust. He is holding them in the presence of God. And in that great day then, when all the elect will be saved, he will join them together and glorify them and give them the same body that the resurrected body of Jesus Christ has. His body, we say, we are not going to be spooks forever. We're not going to be little clouds of gas like cartoon ghosts. It's not going to be like that. We're going to inherit a new heavens and a new earth. Hear it? So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. It means a body that is controlled and indwelt and motivated by the Holy Spirit. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven, as was the earthly man, so those who are of the earth, and as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare unto you, brothers, that flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable shall have been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where, oh, death, is your sting? Sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the Lord. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The great resurrection. We're not talking now about God homing in on one one pile of dust and forming it and shaping it and embracing this dust and breathing into it and making it alive. Not one. We're talking about the sands of the seashores resurrections that number we're talking about the resurrection of bodies more than any man can number immediately is there every continent all the world over God is raising the dead in Christ he loves them his intent that they shall be with him forever and ever and like him we stand beside the ravaged body of one we've loved for long And finally, we let go the cold hand. And as Christians, we know we're going to meet again. But we will not be meeting the weak, skeletal, yellowed one that soon we're going to give up to the earth. But one gloriously like 
the Lord Jesus, delivered from every taint of weakness and decay. He will raise this one up, whom we loved. And he will raise us up too. We join to him. The body can't be separated from the head. My youngest grandson may ask me, Tide, was uh, Adam a real person? Oh yes, I reply. Yeah, that's what our teachers in our Christian school say. Just checking on you, he says, nodding and smiling. If I told him no, what do you make of the Christian hope of the resurrection? What do you make of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3? What do you make of Cain and, and Abel and Seth and Joshua? They're all direct descendants of, of Adam. In the narrative of the, of the book of Genesis, the Son of God said it was truth. Thy word is truth, that it can't be broken. Where do we draw a line and where do we say, well, mythology ends here. And history and truth begins now. God was working with real Moses and real Samuel and real King David with his inspiration and his lusts and above all with real Jesus who said, I- I'm, I'm the truth. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Bible engages with real people. You're real people. You're on holiday here. You're members of the local congregation. I stand in this pulpit and we're here and you're understanding what I'm saying. I'm explaining to you the Bible today. Real people with real sins who need real forgiveness through a real saviour who came to give his life a ransom for many who died as the Lamb of God and rose the third day fourth thing I want to say is that Adam is the key to the nature of man without a historical Adam how how do you explain this incredible person what a piece of work is a man how noble in reason how infinite in faculties in form and moving how express and admirable in action how like an angel in apprehension how like a god Where did Mozart come from? Where did Leonardo da Vinci and Shakespeare and Isaac Newton and Einstein and Churchill and Rembrandt and Jesus? A lump of atoms. The lump. People all over Wales today are worshipping the lump. How do you explain the brilliance of their minds, their creativity, their moral strength? Their willingness to sacrifice their lives for others. The infinite distance that there is between ourselves and the creatures that we see in the Attenborough programs. You don't get much help in in knowing who you are from observing the humbler creation, do you? You see the beauty of the God who made them, how wonderful, how you can't not believe in God when you see those creatures under the sea and those forest creatures 
without Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, the origin of humanity is just a black hole of chance and luck multiplied by a billion years. If the Adam of Genesis is myth, well, that is where the whole of Scripture starts and is referred to again and again, you know, right through the prophets, uh, the, the, the psalmists often go back to creation. And you are doing what the king did with his penknife, you're throwing it into the fire pot and burning those early chapters. And that diminishes our confidence in the truthfulness and the relevance of the Bible which was affirmed by the best man this world has ever seen. The wisest, the most self-integrated and holy and happy man that this world has seen. You deny Adam. And then humanity and you, you've cut your accountability with God. It is not then, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after death the judgment, the moral universe, and the living God. The New Testament was written by people who knew Jesus Christ. They'd spent three never-to-be-forgotten years in his presence. They'd watched him. They'd seen his miracles. They'd seen how he behaved off-duty. as when he was teaching men and women. They said, holy men of old spoke as they were moved by the Spirit of God. That was their conviction about the Old Testament scriptures. Paul said, all scripture is given by the, the breath, the breathing out of God, the Holy Spirit. And they said, and it's so profitable. It's profitable for us to know about man's sinful nature. The Areopagus was just surrounded by a history of cruelty. The wars against Persia. The crucifixions all over the Roman Empire, Greece not excluded. Men's bodies being hung on crossroads for days until they died. Or in the great Appian Way, another every, every 50 yards, a cross lifted up at the slave revolution. And thousands of men hanging, writhing there. That was the atmosphere in which they lived. Why? Why is there no change? Why haven't we learned? Why is Salman Rushdie saying, it, this is the worst, that we've known it? We are seeing worse abominations, are we not? People of my generation who've lived through the Second World War and now are hearing, well, my people, uh, Genesis 3. It's the explanation. It's the bedrock for understanding why men treat men as they do. Why men treat girls, young girls, as they do. In Rotherham and Aylesbury and no doubt in Aberystwyth too. 
Why men treat their wives as they do? Why they treat animals? Why? In the wealth of this country, the safety of this country, and they behave like that. Here it is, Genesis 3, our federal head, Adam, then stood in our stead and defied God and took the forbidden fruit and death came through sin and down it spiraled through mankind until 2050. We're natural born rebels against God. The judgment followed one trespass and brought about condemnation. The fifth thing I want to say is that Adam's fall is the key to man's depravity. If you take Adam out of the picture, if you just remove Genesis 3 totally, no Adam any more than there was Jack the Giant Killer, any more than uh, there was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, if they're just little sweet stories, you've no explanation for universal depravity. Why has no country, no political system, no civilization, no tribe in the most remote part recently discovered? And there's no sin there at all. Remember the great uh, debate between Augustine and, uh, and Pelagius. Do we sin because we're sinners? That's what Augustine said. That's why you sin. Because you're a sinner. You've got a sinful heart. Or are we sinners because we sin? That's what Pelagius said. Once Adam is discarded, then our depravity is simply bad luck. That's the way the cookie crumbles. And Pelagius considers men to be free. And it's everyone's choice to decide on their lifestyle and what they believe and if they do wrong or not do wrong. But the great Augustine resisted Pelagius as David, our patron saint, as he also fought against Pelagianism coming into Wales in the 4th century. He went back to Genesis. One, two, and three. The origin, the rank, the office of our first parents. And they taught that in Adam we, we all fell. We've fallen short of God's glory. And the will of man is not free. But man's will is bound to Adam. Is bound to sin. And all the time we are fighting against that camber, that bias. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. And he can't understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Historic Adam, foolishness. That's what the world says. Historic fall, folly. Natural man at enmity against God. Nonsense, the world says. That's man's rebellion today as in Eden. But the weakness of God is stronger than man, and the folly of God is wiser than man. So we will look right into the face of man's depravity. We groan at what we see, but we don't attribute it to God. We don't say, that's how it's always been, I'm sorry. 
the best die young, and all those cliches. We have an answer when men use human suffering as uh, an excuse for not coming to church and not hearing me preach. We stood in the fair and we were giving out leaflets there and a man got very antagonistic. and He said, oh, I couldn't believe in God. My mother died of cancer. And he said it to Ivan, Ivan whose wife had died of cancer. Ivan could tenderly, kindly speak to him. He was using it, wasn't it? It was the great excuse that he didn't have to consider God for the rest of his days because of what God had done to his mother. They say if God were all-powerful, he could prevent that sort of thing. If he were weak, then he's not God. If he's not loving, then why should I give him my heart and life? But the Bible, the Bible sets before us non-puppet Adam, free Adam in his unique role as the federal head of mankind. Just like our prime minister will make a decision and he'll say, we're going to now make uh, homosexual marriage legal. He makes a decision and he promotes it. And so you have it in the nation. Like the head of North Korea will make some decisions and Christians are suffering mightily because of it. The The head of a family... He'll decide he'll murder or he'll be violent or he'll rob and he goes to prison and his family suffer the guilt and the shame because of it. They're plunged into it. His parents, his wife, his brothers and sisters. That's how it is. God who opposes sin God who is light, in whom is no darkness at all, gave choice, gave freedom to my father. My father. My father did wrong. My father said, maybe I can be as smart as God. And he took of the fruit. I'm saying to you, you trust my father's son. My dear brother, my saviour, my prophet and priest and king, Jesus Christ, you, you trust in him. He's the last Adam. He came. And Satan came to him like he came to Adam, but he didn't come in, in a garden, in paradise. He came in a desert. And our Lord said, it is written. It is written. It is written. Three times he quoted from the writings of Moses. It is written. That was what my father Adam did. Little girl, his father was a theologian in Wheaton College in Illinois, not far from Chicago. Um, She once stood in front of a painting of Adam and Eve and her face grew hard and she lifted up her little fist and she shook it. You ruined everything, she said to the portrait of Adam and Eve there, hiding, hiding from God. Are you hiding from God? The facticity of Adam and Eve, the last thing I want to say in a minute, it's so relevant to our own age, isn't it? There's a a group of Christians and they meet here. Um, Most of them are Chinese. 
They, they, they met for the last time this term, ten of them. Eleven days ago, Tuesday, last week they met. And they were talking, uh, they were studying the Bible, and then uh, a Chinese girl raised her hand and she said, um, what about this homosexual marriage? It was a new factor and it was, it's all around us, isn't it? And ultimately you go back to Genesis 2 and 3. Woman created after man, woman created from man, woman created for man, equal in the image and likeness of God, equal in their fallenness and guilt, and equal in redemptive privilege. They can run into the presence of God and see God's smiling face, and they can speak to God and talk to God. Abba, Father, woman, man. A child who's in Christ can do that. The great privilege of us. When our Lord was asked about marriage and divorce, Jesus is the wonderful counselor who can help you with your marriage problems. Then he approached by going to the opening chapters of Genesis when Paul wants to talk about uh, the role of women and men and he goes to the opening chapters of Genesis. They appeal to this grand and glorious, solid truth that there is there. What a groaning world we live in. And that's why men behave as they do. And Jesus has come that we might have life. The last Adam has appeared. Adam's sin was a pebble cast into a pool and its ripples have reached Cardigan Bay. And they've reached 2015. The cross of Christ is the rock of ages then, cast into the ocean of the love of God. And, ah, its waves lift us up. The tide of that love sweeps through the whole world uh, today. And it's going to take us to the new heavens and the new earth. Paradise was lost by the first Adam. It's been regained by the last Adam. The one who said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He says to a man who, who puts his trust in his helplessness in Christ. And it's what you must do. You know you've got to do it. You know it's the only way. The only help. This Jesus. This Jesus. Lord, bless your word to us then, we pray this day. Help us to learn from our Father's fall. And the wonderful grace that clothed him and kept him for so long. Oh Lord, we pray that uh, we all may know the presence and help of this last Adam. To keep us and help us. Oh, may his kingdom be spread through the world this day, we ask in his name. Amen.